Hey, thanks for listening to the Shift Your Spirits podcast. I'm your host, Slade Robertson. For over 10 years, I've been a professional intuitive and the author of the blog, Shift Your Spirits, where I try to write about spirituality with fewer hearts and flowers than most New Age blather. I also mentor emerging intuitives, psychics, and healers in a program called Automatic Intuition. Today, I have part two in the three-part series, Tales of a Fourth Grade Haunting. And as always, I have an oracle segment at the end of the show. So be thinking about a question or concern you have. Hold it in your mind, and I'll come back on at the end after the final links and credits and leave you with an extra message. If you'd like to read the original versions of my paranormal memoirs, or if you prefer reading posts in general, please check out the new website. There's now an archive link at the bottom of every page down in the footer, which will take you to a list of all 11 years worth of Shifter Spirits articles. I've had a lot of requests for text transcripts of the podcast episodes, and I would love to offer full transcripts in the near future, but transcription is very expensive. You can help make the transcripts a reality and support my time in producing this show by pledging your support on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. And listeners who support on Patreon can also access bonus Q&A episodes where you send in questions, I record answers to them, and they go out to the patrons of the show exclusively. So, if you want to find out how you can become a patron, especially if you'd like to see full transcripts of the show in the near future, please go to patreon.com slash shift your spirits and that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash shift your spirits okay so back to my fourth grade haunting stories here's part two the plural form of vortex i learned to spell vortices before i knew what they were or before i suspected that we might be living with a paranormal one in our house From the third grade through the sixth, I was obsessed with participating in spelling bees. I realize now I didn't make it as far up the ladder of success in the bee world as my class-level and school-level wins might have encouraged me to dream. I got up to the municipal level a couple of times before bombing. The words I slaughtered are the ones I ultimately retained. Inertia comes to mind as one of my most humiliating language arts moments. Having never seen or heard that word before, it sounded to me like a severely unfortunate girl's name. I would study those special preparatory books of challenging B-words for weeks on end, creating shoeboxes full of homemade flashcards and constantly pestering my parents to quiz me. What's a vortices? I asked my dad as he made me breakfast one morning. A what? Let me see that. He leaned away from the stove with a spatula in his hand to squint quickly at the spelling bee book I'd brought to the table. Oh, vortices. That's the plural form of vortex. You know what a vortex is? He explained a vortex to me as a kind of whirlpool within liquids or fluids or the visible spiraling column of air in a tornado but then went on to elaborate about the temporal vortices in science fiction that were more likely to engage both our imaginations. I'm afraid I may have grown up confusing vortices and portals, the tub-drained special effects you find in television time travel, iris openings between dimensions and worlds. 
Did you know that according to Merriam-Webster, vortices and vortexes are both correct plural forms of vortex? Vortexes sounds like a state where they're just looking for a good excuse to secede from the union. Whether my fourth grade vocabulary was technically correct or not, you'll have to accept that my brother, my friends, and I all knew what we were talking about whenever we'd spy certain phenomena and cry out, Vortex! in great excitement. The subtle depressions that appeared on the surface of still swimming pools? Vortex! The dust devils that whip up leaves in the fall and magically spin down a driveway for several feet before losing power, never quite manifesting to true Oz-worthy vehicles, but still a vortex. Potentially, there were vortices or portals, wormholes, all over the greenhouse. But the one that I most like to point out to other kids was remarkably easy to spot, located at the end of the hall between the living room and dining room. It was a test of sorts of clairvoyance, I suppose. You had to stand in my bedroom doorway and squint down the longest sight line that the house's floor plan allowed, and there it was, ever so faint, a column of transparent, barely visible, just a little bit sparkly dust particles suspended between floor and ceiling, about the girth of an adult, only taller, not unlike the first and last traces of the transporter effects in Star Trek. I didn't know what it was or why it was there, but I wasn't the only one who could see it. We knew one thing for certain. If you sat in the vortex, you would see the white cat. Now, the white cat is not to be confused with shadow cats. Shadow cats are small, vague, smudgy forms that you may see inside or outdoors, out of the corner of your eye, darting furtively away from you, low to the ground like a wary feline slinking away, tail down, trying to make itself invisible. You may see them dash under a parked car, dart into a line of shrubbery or tree shade, slip back into your closet or under your bed when you surprise them by entering a room or turning on a light. Shadow cats are spiritual in nature, but they don't necessarily have anything to do with the souls of house cats, other than the relative size, shape, and fluid way that they move. They could be any kind of closet monster or underbed troll. Shadow cats are all over the place. I see them constantly, everywhere. The white cat was a place and time specific manifestation, the ghost of an actual individual kitty that dwelt in the greenhouse, an earthbound pet or a psychic echo. Because the entire downstairs was either an enormous vortex or a set of interlocking vortices, no one much liked to watch television down there except my dad. My mama, my brother, and I preferred to suffer a smaller black-and-white set on a rolling cart we kept in a corner of the dining room upstairs and would pull out a few feet toward the end of the sofa in the adjoining living room. We'd drag a rust-colored crushed velvet cushion off the sofa and prop it against the floor and the door jamb and settle in to watch after-school cartoons right smack in the sparkle column vortex. I would look up into the air above me, a little uncomfortable, knowing that something should be raining down on me, but the phenomenon was only visible from a distance. At a slight angle to the TV, we had a straight view down the full length of the upstairs hallway into my bedroom at the other end of the house. 
It was during these moments that we'd see the white cat sneak from my brother's bedroom doorway to mine and back again. It avoided my parents' room. I'd call white cat, or my brother would go, there it is, did you see it? I don't remember this being at all frightening. Actually, there was a pervasive tension that hung over us until the white cat appeared. The anticipation was distracting when you'd first settle in. It was hard to pay attention to the TV until he arrived. I think we both felt relieved that it continued to happen. It was a little bite-sized thrill of experience. The recurrence was an insistent reality. While some of the moves in this ongoing haunting were truly disturbing, the white cat was the game's harmless and amusing mascot. Just for the record, I never suspected the white cat of being the invisible creature that viciously bit me downstairs in the den. When we first moved into the greenhouse, there was a period where we played and explored the lower level until events finally drove us permanently upstairs. The first floor was partially underground. The two-car garage opened onto the driveway on one end. Inside was a laundry room, an office, a large closet under the stairwell, and an L-shaped den with a sliding glass door that led out onto a back patio. The den was thinly carpeted over the concrete foundation with no padding or subfloor. The carpet was an indoor-outdoor variety, dark blue modeled with black, the nubby kind, not the bristly kind you'd find, say, in the bottom of a ski boat. In the last episode, I mentioned the mystery spot in the carpet that slowly and steadily unraveled itself. My brother and I got so much trouble with my mother because neither of us would confess to being responsible for this ongoing destruction or rat the other one out. It proved to be the source of a momentous disciplinary injustice that I may have forgiven, but have clearly not forgotten. The hearth and the fireplace surround were covered in dark gray slate with jagged edges that portended of bloody falls, emergency room visits, and inevitable stitches. Hung on the slate wall were two manhole-covered size sun-shaped ceramic plaques painted in burnished, quote-unquote, aged bronze, one depicting some faux Aztec or Mayan calendar, the other the astrological wheel of the zodiac. If you're over 40 or shop in thrift stores, you've probably seen a set of these. I can't tell you how many hours of my childhood were spent trying to riddle the connection between these two objects and how they might transmit useful information. Something about the grinning mask face in the center of the Aztec one just screamed vortex to me. The large closet under the stairs had a red light bulb. My dad said someone must have used it as a dark room for developing photographs. There was a kind of hatch that opened into a deep crawl space of raw concrete and roughly plastered walls. I don't remember how he first spotted it, but my brother picked at a crumbling bump in the wall and a skeleton key fell out. The mystery of its being entombed in such a manner implied great significance. My brother kept the key in a small metal munitions case he called his treasure box. I guarantee you that box and its contents, including the key, are probably still in the back of the closet of his old room at my mother's house. This was still several years before the Amityville Horror or Poltergeist came out, 
But later on in junior high school, while spending the night with a friend who had HBO, I saw these movies with their awful closets and immediately thought of the greenhouse. At first, the most notable discomfort in watching the big color television downstairs in the den was trying to hear over the maddening noises. There was a constant chink-a-chink-a-chink-a-chink, a sound of metal meeting stone, like the tapping of a trowel on bricks or a hammer and chisel on a stone tablet. Even my dad, whether he realized it or not, would slowly and steadily keep turning up the TV volume and wind up getting yelled at. My mother would call down the stairs, clearly exasperated. Can you not hear that? Well, can't you turn it down some? My dad attempted to debunk the incessant hammering. He theorized that the concrete block retaining wall that held the earth back from the patio just off the den was catching the sound of distant construction, that it was carrying across the neighborhood and echoing through the glass patio doors like a giant eardrum. I couldn't believe he was comfortable with this explanation. I became shrill bordering on hysterical the third or fourth time he insisted this was the cause of the hammering sound. But if you go outside, you don't hear it anymore. I would stand out on the patio or in the driveway by the garage doors and scan across the trails to all the other houses in the neighborhood, none of which were under construction or visible repair. There was nothing to account for that sound. Similarly, my dad tried to convince me that the sound of the basketball bouncing outside my bedroom window was actually the globe on my bookshelf bumping against the wall. Okay, so problems with this theory. A, the globe made a dull cardboard thud when you banged it into the wall, while the sound I heard at night while trying to go to sleep had that distinct, stretched, hollow, elastic ring that sounds like absolutely nothing but a basketball. And B, what the hell kind of invisible creature was standing in my bedroom all the way across the room, rocking my bookshelf with the globe on top into the wall over and over again? Couldn't he see the hole in these theories? And why wasn't he more disturbed by it? Did it not occur to him that these noises might be hands reaching through portals between the dimensions of hell and suburbia, hammering and bouncing things? Dribbling ghost hands that came through these gaping holes, these awful, maddening, mysterious, terrible, swirling, invisible holes, these, yes, vortices. The last time I watched television downstairs alone was when Peter Pan came on. It wasn't the Disney animated feature, but one of those Kathy Rigby on a wire versions that was basically a camera aimed at a stage musical and then rebroadcast on TV throughout the 60s and 70s. I tended to create full-on audience participation, immersive productions of children's fantasy television events whether or not it was ever intended or called for. For example, I religiously watched The Wizard of Oz in a black cloak, pointed hat, and green face paint. Yes, I mostly identified with Elphaba and Nessa Rose, long before Wicked enriched their identities and revealed their names to us. The only thing that kept me out of a pair of pippy long-stocking hose and red sequin slippers was just the sad fact of not owning them. Although I found the Peter Pan television musical a bit lame, it allowed for multiple dress-up options. 
I possessed an elf costume from some school Christmas play. Green tights, green felt tunic, pointy felt slippers. Without the stocking cap, I probably looked as much like Sprout in a Green Giant commercial as I did Peter Pan. And I also had a pirate costume from a recent Halloween. Head kerchief, eye patch, single large hoop earring, white peasant blouse, wide black belt sword holster, black pants stuffed into tall boots. I was silently pleased and a bit envious when Adam Ant made this look acceptable to wear in public several years later. Not only were both of these costumes appropriate, they allowed for costume changes, transformations I would affect during commercial breaks with the speed of a backstage share or Stevie Nicks during a long, teasing instrumental bridge. I did the Peter Pan look for the first few segments, practicing flight from the sofa arms and the ottoman, but I was relieved when we reached the Captain Hook portion of the tale, which was my cue to shift to the preferred pirate gear. Those synthetic green tights were insufferable. I dashed upstairs to my bedroom, donned the majority of the costume, and then appealed to my mother to tie the bandana on for me as she watched a program on the black and white set in the upstairs vortex. You're changing again, she said. It's time for the pirates. Will you do my beard? I offered her the eyebrow pencil I'd already snatched from her bathroom. One of my favorite parts of this look was the drawn-on facial hair. No, let's not do the beard tonight. It's too much trouble to get off, and the show's going to come back on. You're going to miss it. Okay, so I scrapped the beard, even though I never felt so much myself in the mirror than when I wore an eyebrow pencil goatee. I was able to grow the real thing later in life. And turn the volume down, she pleaded as I went back to the den below. I already did. I believe she just insisted on telling us to turn down the volume as a default refrain, regardless of how loud it actually ever was. I guess she figured there was always the potential for more quiet. That infernal sound began, tapping, chink-a-chink-a-chink, and with it were male voices yelling to one another, as if over their own hammering racket. As always, it seemed to come from the patio outside the den, yet very far away at the same time. The sliding glass door itself must have been some kind of vortex. I got up from the couch to investigate for the millionth time with a total lack of expectation at discovering anything new about the source of the noises. It was getting dark outside and the sliding glass door had become a semi-transparent mirror. A small beardless pirate confronted me. Behind me, the TV show insisted we save Tinkerbell, and the little pirate clapped as a testament to our belief in fairies. I approached the glass door to peer out at the patio, cupping my hands around my eyes to block the inside light's reflection. A man's voice said, Don't look in there. It was a loud whisper, a hiss, that came close in my ear from everywhere around me all at once. Close behind it, a woman called my name, Slade! with a tone that might have pulled me back from a, crossing a busy street or from the edge of a cliff, from the mouth of a vortex. It sounded like the big one, the pink lady, my guardian angel. I jerked around to look behind me, hoping to find her standing in the room, but there was nothing there, only the glow of the television. In that moment, something bit me. Something stung my leg. I slapped frantically at my pants, shook them to loose whatever bee or spider had invaded my costume. 
I dropped to the floor and yanked off my left boot, rolling the pant leg up to find the burning spot. There was a white edge, flapping triangle of skin on the tender inside of my calf, just below my knee. The wound was the exact size and shape of the puncture hole made by a can opener. My first thought was of a talon, a claw, a captain's hook, the beak of a bird of prey, a fang, not fangs plural, but a hideously large singular pointed tooth. As I reached out to touch it, a dark pearl of blood surfaced, covering the hole, a gem in the setting of torn skin. It grew until it broke under my finger and ran to the cuff of my pants, soaking and disappearing into the dark fabric, even as the flow began to pulse slightly like a school hallway drinking fountain with lousy water pressure. I held the rolled edge of the cloth against the flow and hobbled to the stairs, screaming for my parents. It did cross my mind that, had I not changed costumes, my green tights would have been ruined. In the car, on the way to receive potential stitches in a tetanus shot, my mom kept asking me, what did you do? And my dad engaged in his Spock-like debunking procedure, trying to eliminate the possibilities. There wasn't any broken glass, no jagged metal. He kept coming back to the conclusion that I had fallen on my toy sword while trying to fly around the den. This logic was infuriatingly weak. I explained, petulantly I'm sure, that flying practice belonged with the Peter Pan costume, not the pirate. And how could the sword, the dullest rubbery gray plastic, have punched through my pants without making a hole in the fabric? I said nothing about the voices I'd heard, but I insisted that I'd been bitten. It was a bite. I could only imagine how large a creature would have to be to wield such a singular fang. It was a small blessing that, whatever it was, it was invisible. Thanks again for listening to the Shifter Spirits podcast. Tune in to next week's episode for part three, the finale of the Tales of a Fourth Grade Haunting. For show notes, links, and all the past episodes, please visit shiftyourspirits.com. You can subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or whatever app you use to access podcasts. If you'd like to get an intuitive reading with me or download a free ebook and meditation to help you connect with your guides, please go to sladeroberson.com. And if you're interested in my professional intuitive training program, you can start the course for free by downloading the attunement at automaticintuition.com. Before I go, I promise to leave you a message in answer to a question or concern you may have. This week, I'm guided to pull another card from my favorite deck, the Cosmic Tribe Tarot. The message for today is a reading of Eric Ganther's words. So take a moment to think about your issue, hold it in your mind, or speak it out loud. I'll pause for just a few seconds right now. We've got the Ten of Discs, Abundance. Should the Ten of Discs appear in your reading, be thankful for the riches that have come your way. What gifts have you recently received? Wealth is an energy that needs to be grounded or it becomes unruly and dominating. Where's your wealth going? Are you saving some of your current abundance for the future? When you contemplate your net worth, 
don't forget to incorporate your share of a healthy environment. Wealth comes from Gaia, and she must be tended wisely if we expect her to sustain us in the future. And I'll talk to you later.